is Chelsea Higgs Wise. And I decided to start a show about being the biracial girl who was living her life, being half and half, never picking a side until one day the world informed me, girl, you're black. I'm from the This is Race Capital with Chelsea Hicks Wise on WRIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Independent Radio. So I'm starting a weekly show to unearth the historically racist narratives of Richmond, Virginia. That's a, also a microcosm of the world. I'm heavily obsessed with narratives and what lies underneath. That's what the show is about, commentating on how I feel of the undercurrents of narratives holding back progress for folks with melanin. The show will put on locals that have real stories and experiences that shape our narrative frame around historic events. The show will give some of my personal narrative vomits about how having a white mother and a black father has shaped my lens. The show will also challenge me and my producer, Kat, to ask the guests on the show, what's your privilege? To identify that we all have privilege, therefore an opportunity to step back and allow others, underrepresented, to step up. I've got a dope-ass producer, Kat Maudlin Jackson, who's here to feed into my commentary while also making us sound good. Speaking of sound, the music of Race Capital has been used with permission by Virginia hip-hop legend and my friend of 20 years, Nicholas F. off his Triflin album, and the song is titled Richmond. And finally, what this show is, is an honest platform from a locally born and raised Black woman. I'm going to get all sorts of vulnerable with y'all and hope you listen and love the content anyway. So thanks for being here and sticking with us during the uncomfortable, the horrifying, and of course, the fun times we use to cope with this atrocious reality of Richmond's history. Check me and Kat out every Wednesday at 10 a.m. right here on Race Capital. Okay, y'all, it's Black History Month. This has been a really interesting Black History Month here in Richmond, Virginia, the formal capital of the Confederacy, race capital. On February the 1st, our governor, Ralph Northam, had his yearbook exposed. That's right. We all know the story. We've seen the blackface. We've seen the Klan photo. We heard the apology. We saw, well, we almost saw the moonwalk. We saw him give us examples of how he used to take black shoe polish off of his face. We heard him remind us how difficult it is to take black shoe polish off. We then heard the voices of women, kind of. We didn't give him a a great megaphone like we did the lieutenant governor, but we heard the women come out and say that, hey, we need to also check our lieutenant governor from sexual allegations. So in Black History Month, we've already had problems with our governor. Do we trust him? Is he racist? We walked down the aisle to our lieutenant governor. What about him? He's a black man. He's not racist. But he's a rapist? Both some pretty hard R words. And then I'm still living my life here in Black History Month, trying to be great with my racist governor and my lieutenant governor that I can't trust anymore. And now it's my attorney general. He's coming out apologizing for his black face of the past. I'm hearing elected officials saying, oh, Mark Herring, he's super apologetic. He's different than Ralph. That's when I really started to see that we have no idea what we want or where we're going. I'm one of those folks that you saw on the news. I'm with the organizers. I've been by the Capitol. I've been organizing. I've been working with those that have been organizing in the streets for years, months, Those have been talking about Ralph Northam and policies that they believe to be racist for months, whether it's about the pipeline or the environment in general. We don't know where we're going. 
I was confused. I see people are confused. Now everyone's like, well, what do you want? Does Ralph resign? Everybody called for Ralph's resignation. Everyone. But nothing happened. No one's doing anything now. Well, session is just about over. And now we wait. Everyone said that the legislators were too busy to handle this. They just needed to get through session. It's budget season. All of the things that we have to focus on first, except for the crisis that everybody is looking at in our leadership. Okay, so after session, what happens? Are we going to talk about policy? Are we going to talk about new leadership? I'm not really totally sure. Because if we talk about policy, does this mean that we've forgiven these leaders? If they do listen to us and pass a policy that we've now demanded, do they now get to escape their past? Do they get a pat on the back? Do they get to say they've progressed? I don't know. And then as far as everything with the lieutenant governor, I know he's going to have a trial. I know he's going to have to face a jury. I'm just wondering, what jury is Ralph Northam going to face? What about Mark Herring? I'm just wondering when here in Richmond, Virginia, the formal capital of the Confederacy, in Virginia itself, when are we going to start holding racism accountable? I'm looking to my colleagues. I'm looking to my comrades. I know where the power is in the city. And now I'm just looking for the collective action of what is our voice? How do we create a collective action when Black folks are not a monolith? How are we going to create a collective action when we add and invite people that are not Black and hear their voices too? How are we going to move forward in our next election? Are we going to allow the same people in power to keep going? Does race matter in politics? Is it going to matter in the campaigns? Do we have to check all of the yearbooks? These are all questions that I want to talk about. I might not have answers, but it's important to start the conversations. So I invite you to join me and my producer, Kat, on the show as we explore and interrogate the narratives here in Richmond. We've got a lot to talk about. And it's a great time here in Virginia to really start a show about the racial dynamics here in Central Virginia. I always talk about being biologically biracial and politically black with a dual lens and seeing things in lights and seeing things different. But I'm not a white woman. So luckily, I think it's lucky that my producer here, Kat, has joined me to just be somebody to say, hey, this is my perspective. I'm really excited for us to have our voices here, but to also invite folks to invite the public in to share their history, to share their experience as experts. Even if no one's ever called you an expert, you are an expert on your story and your narrative. And here on this show, that's what we're going to uplift and amplify. Ain't that right, Kat? It sure is. (laughs) So thanks for joining our show. We're super excited. Yeah, we are. And as we talk about race, as we talk about heavy things and all of the oppressions, disenfranchisements, the laws, we want to make sure we have a good time. No one's going to steal our joy. And as we move forward in progress, it's going to be so important that we understand how to take care of each other. So if there's any other way that we can help to take care of you from these airwaves, please give us a shout right there at racecapital at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you guys about what you want to hear on this show. So not only on our Gmail, we do all the things, right? We've got the social medias. So find us on Twitter, Race Capital. Find us on Instagram, Race Capital. And Facebook, Race Capital. Now, when you're looking for Race Capital, remember that it's Race Capital with an O in the capital. Why, Chelsea, is that? Good question, Kat. I'm so glad you asked. Well, when naming this show, I understand the importance of place. And when we spell capital with an O, we know that we're talking about the state capital, the grounds, the people in the capital. And when it comes to race, here in Richmond, Virginia, I want to talk about those in power or think that they have the power. So we're here talking about place, space, and time and race capital. Oh, Chelsea, I have a question. Oh, yeah, Kat. When I look on our race capital Twitter, 
I see a crescent moon and a rose. What does that mean? Ooh, what could that mean? <laughs> it means that we stole a really cool strategy from our friends over at RVA Dirt. Shout out to the ladies. Mania, 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 mania. So the ladies with RVA Dirt, in order to distinguish themselves when using the Twitter page, they use emojis. So Kat and I are going to do the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. So Kat, which emoji are you? The moon or the rose? I am the moon. Ooh. Ah. Why the moon and why the crescent one? Why not the whole one? Oh, man, you really put me on the spot with that. OK, well, you know what? Let's keep the people waiting. Yeah. Right? Let's give them something to it's keep. It's a her. secret. It's a total secret. <laughs> all right. And mine is the rose. Mine is pretty simple in that many people say, oh, I look a lot like Amber Rose. Oh, with my haircut and the blonde. You know what? I will take that because Amber Rose is a whole body pause, sex pause feminist. And so I will take that compliment. And also, I really do believe in Rose and the gift. And if I can do anything else and nature. Flowers grow in nature. And that is a huge gift to me right from the ground to someone else's heart. So I am the rose. And it comes with pricks. So sometimes y'all know, y'all know me. I can get a little pricky. So yeah, we're really excited to be here with you guys. Follow us on all of the things. Reach out to us and just keep track of what's going on with the moon and the rose. So I mentioned my producer Kat has joined me on the air. And so Kat, tell the folks a little bit about yourself. Hey, everybody. I'm Kat Maudlin Jackson. So I am a Richmonder by choice. <laughs> I moved here in 2008 from the 757. I stayed for five years to attend and then work at VCU. And then I decided to go off and travel the country and be a journalist for five more years before I decided that I wanted to come home. So now I'm back to the city and all of its shenanigans and everything is new all over again. <laughs> so I'm going to be here to ask a lot of the fill in the gap questions. I'm so delighted that you all are listening today. Thank you so much for tuning in. And I'm super stoked to collaborate with Chelsea on this show and see what happens next. No, Kat, the pleasure really is all mine. Thank you for being here with me. No, seriously, y'all. I am so stoked to have a journalist, like an official one. She's so into this and to find someone else passionate here at the WRIR studios is like a match made in heaven. So thanks to Kat, but a special thanks to our guest that is coming up next. So Dr. Julian Hader is a professor at the University of Richmond, who's actually on sabbatical right now. And you may have seen and heard him on the Monument Avenue Commission. I was really excited to invite him here on our first episode of Race Capital just to lay out some of that general history here in Richmond. He has written books, articles, and his voice is one that we all should know and love because of his unselfishness with giving us truth. He also gave us a little insight that he's working on a next book coming out with history right here of Richmond, Virginia and politics. So up next, we're so happy and excited to welcome Dr. Julian Hader. So our guest today is someone that we all know and have heard of before here in the Richmond area because he speaks on everything history. And we're so lucky to have in the studio, Dr. Julian Hader. How you doing? Hey, Julian. You might okay if I call you Julian? That's fine. Yeah. No, I don't need to call you Dr. H. Or... No. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much for being here. Do you mind telling our listeners a little bit about where they may have heard you from around Richmond or 
what should they know about you? Uh, I, I wrote a book on uh, Richmond's recent political history, the urban history. But uh, more recently, I was part of the Monuments Commission. Uh, I did an interview for 60 Minutes in relationship to Confederate memorialization. But I've written extensively in the Washington Post, in the Richmond Times Dispatch, or have been interviewed in the Richmond Times Dispatch and other local and national media outlets, not only about Richmond politics, but about politics in the twilight of the 20th century in general. So go ahead and plug your book. What was the book that you wrote? Oh, it's called The Dream is Lost, uh, Voting Rights and the Politics of Race in Richmond, Virginia. Mm. And in some ways it's meant to not only explain the political history of the city of Richmond and in some ways Virginia, but how we got to now. Mm. Um, and it's a, in some ways a usable history to think about, well, how did politics shape not only the 20th century, but how did the 20th century then begin to shape some of the problems that we see in Richmond to this day that the city's actually struggled to undo? They've, um, I think in some ways the city has found um, that it's easier to perpetuate an injustice than it is to undo one. Hmm. And uh, particularly when you're thinking in light of uh, Jim Crow segregation. Right. Man, that sounds like required reading. Here in Virginia. I would hope so. <laughs> it should be, right? It should be. So you, uh, did you mention your, your, oh, are you still teaching right now? Is that something you're doing? No, I'm actually on sabbatical, but ah. uh, yeah. I, but when I'm not on sabbatical, yeah, I'm teaching at the University of Richmond. Yes. There you go. Great, great. So a big reason I do know this gentleman is from the Monument Avenue Commission. So we saw that happen. We saw, what was a little bit about that board, that board makeup? You are a professor historian, right. correct? So yes. can you talk a little bit about, maybe not all names, but what did that board look like and consist of? Uh, I think it was a loose affiliation of scholars, mm-hmm. uh, people who were involved in the art in, uh, community, people who were involved in the political community. I think there were even some, in fact, I know that there were members of the city council mm-hmm. on the commission. I'm not sure how they went about selecting who was on the commission. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know that there were criticisms of the composition of the commission, but I will say if you know anything about Richmond's history, it's probably one of the better commissions that's been assembled, mm-hmm. particularly given the nature in which some of these things have shook out in the past. Right. I, I will definitely say of attending the meetings and following the commission, I'm not sure if folks got everything they wanted out of it, but I do know the information that you all put out there right. every single time, yes. that narrative you all shaped right. was really important. Yeah, I think in some ways... Uh, it was our job to to come up with suggestions and it was then we gave those suggestions to city council mm-hmm. hoping that they would act on whatever it is that we put forward i think a lot of people thought that it was going to be the commission that was actually responsible for policy creation no it was the commission that was responsible for coming up with the historical analysis that would hopefully shape the nature of public policy and i think we're still in that phase so, so. Uh, the the jury's still out on how the how this is going to how people are going to respond to what the commission put forward right you know, it's really interesting that you said that you all's job was to frame that history and, and mm-hmm. give that historical context. Right. And that's why I made the joke earlier about required reading, sure. because we had to form a whole commission just to lay out our historic narrative with some facts. Uh, yeah. <laughs> right? uh, yeah. You know, it's troubling. I, I just gave a lecture in Philadelphia about um, the Richmond Times Dispatch did a wonderful expose on the nature of histor- uh, history textbooks in the Commonwealth of Virginia in the mid 20th century. And people have a tendency to assume that the first histories that were written were right because they were written closer to the date that a particular historical event happened. Those those textbooks were were lost cause propaganda. They were commissioned by the um, the Commonwealth of Virginia in the 1957 in 1957, had a board that was almost single-handedly responsible for dictating the nature of the high school curriculum. And um, the 
Daughters of the Confederacy and some other organizations had a profound influence on the nature in which those stories were told. I think a lot of people assume, especially people who were alive at that time, and we heard this, by the way, uh, during the Monuments Commission, that people bringing those biases to bear on the conversation in large part, because that's what they had been taught right. for from K through 12. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some ways, those textbooks, short of any real critical analysis, became the, his, the, histor- the, the real history. And so we had to beat back... Mm-hmm. Decades, in fact, of um, historical misinformation and thinking about looking at primary sources and seeing what historical actors actually did as opposed to the ways that people have mythologized about what they did to rationalize not only slavery in the Civil War, but Jim Crow segregation. Right. Well, speaking of rationalizing things, how are you taking and what is your view as a historian? I was talking about this all the time about the current that's going on in our state capital and and rationalizing some of the behavior that we see in our past elected officials. I think it's difficult for people to recognize that progress racial progress and racial bigotry can exist at the same time. Mm. Um, in many cases, they often do. Uh, it's not linear. It's, it's it's a very complicated narrative. And I think, uh, you know, I think it was King who said that the arc of moral justice or the arc of justice bends towards something. I can't remember. I've, uh, I've George Bush that statement, by the way. Um, <laughs> right? I can't remember. It's, it's uh, the arc of the universe bends towards firm. justice. That's what it is. And I'm not sure it does. I think it's more of a pendulum. And my point is, I was shocked that people were surprised that these individuals uh, had that in their lockers, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, it's predictable in some ways. These guys were born and raised during segregation. They were taught by people, their mentors, their parents, their close associates. Mm-hmm. They grew up in segregated communities. I mean, what do we expect from a middle-aged politician that grew up or was at least born during, he was born in 1959, I believe, mm-hmm. born during segregation and raised by people who were segregationists. And in fact, I think one of the things I don't, we, we take for granted is the nature in which racial progress has has evolved in the United States. And, and what I mean by that is being a racial progressive in the, ni- in the mid-20th century was rare. Racism was common sense. That's just how people thought about the world. Right. And so it's, it's safe to assume then if people are born during that era that that's how they're going to think about the world. So I wasn't shocked by the depiction of blackface in the 1980s. Uh, what was what I thought was interesting was the clumsy nature in which they dealt with it afterwards. Yeah, that I, believe me, we are all really interested. In I, I don't know, you know, why. I think it's hard for people to understand um, how slavery evolved. I'm, I'm, I'm moving toward the indentured servitude statement, by the way. Okay. Um, the people that arrived in the in the Chesapeake colony in the early years were not the same as the types of cotton picking plantation Africans that we think about when we think about the slave system. The slave system evolves. They were not in, there's a lot of granularity. These people came in bondage and they were slaves, right? right? And I think, I think Ralph Northam. Hold on. Can you just repeat that past one more time for everybody? Yes, they came in bondage and they were slaves, right? And that, that's what dictates everything. No matter how they got here has a profound influence on. But many of those people for the, just to set the record straight, were also highly skilled. They were multilingual. They had Spanish names. Um, it, it, It was, it's a very interesting story. And I think Northam was trying to do due diligence to that. Story and I don't know who was advising them, but I would have told them do not use the word indentured servitude in large part because you can predict how that's going to land. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and let me jump in right here just because I've actually been following and I don't want to say working with the 400th commemoration, but following them closely and mm-hmm. watching for the past year and a half now actually. And that indentured servant is something that is fed to all of the state legislators. Oh, of course. And and this is what we're going to say about this. It's been all their media. There's actually been elected officials that have 
come and text me and talk to me and said, what else is going on outside of the 400th commemoration Mm -hmm. that does not have this narrative? Because they understand what they're having to stand next to right Right. now. So yeah, you're right. I don't know what he's trying to do by continuing. Well, I do know what they're trying to do by continuing this narrative. Mm -hmm. But when I saw that and heard it on the Gail King show, in my mind, it became even more frustrating because I understand that this line has been fed to legislators for the last year and a half. But yet still in this moment, when it's supposed to be evolving, learning, giving some advice in a crisis situation, this is still what the crisis team is encouraging. People don't do well complexity, right? It's it's perfectly possible that, you know, that slaves can come from Africa and and, uh, poor white folks from, you know, the, the, uh, the worst places in Liverpool in London could come over here and work in extremely hard circumstances as well. And in many instances, indigenous white indigenous servitudes lived tough lives at the beginning of the Chesapeake colony. But that doesn't make slavery any less real. Right. It also doesn't mean that the nature in which slavery becomes inextricably linked to blackness by 1660 is any less real. I think we don't do well with that. And I and I also think there's no there's really no way to gloss over the slave South. And I think that's what we're seeing in large part because many of the people have a vested interest in portraying the slave system as benignly as possible mm-hmm. in large part um, because it's part of the nature in which the lost cause has gotten us to reimagine right. not just the Civil War, but slavery as well. Yeah. And, you know, this complexity is is so interesting. And I, I want to jump errors just a little bit mm-hmm. and talk about what really got me interested in, in you again and, and having you on the show. So a friend of mine, Jesse, who is uh, Jesse Perry of RVA Dirt. Shout out to the ladies. Uh, one night we were nerding out one Saturday and just literally looking up history. I'm not even sure what we were trying to find, but we stumbled across um, a paper called From Intent to Effect, mm-hmm. Richmond, Virginia, and the Protracted Struggle for Voting Rights. Right. 1965 to 1977. Yes. We dove into this because this was something from Richmond City politics history that we had never heard of. Right. So this was just a couple months ago. So shout out to Jesse, the researcher, and and really helping finding this and then us getting stuck on this history. We dug into this. We dug into, I don't want to go into too much, but could you just tell us a little bit about from 1965 to 1977, a a short version, so much happened there. True. Just to tell people the significance of that history here in Richmond. Right. So when you think about the segregated South, um, a lot of times we think of we use the Deep South as a barometer. Mm-hmm. We think about the racial rigidity and the and the summary violence and terrorism that helped whites keep the Jim Crow system in place. Well, in some ways, um, we think we also think about the South as a monolith, right? But Virginia is different, right? Yeah. Virginians know that they're Southern, but they think they're more refined than their brethren to the Deep South, right? Right, right? So they 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 orchestrate the Jim Crow system that way. What that means is by 1965, um, African Americans are voting in the Commonwealth because the thing that kept African Americans from voting was not violence. Was largely poll taxes. So, um, in fact, the city of Richmond elects, and most people know this, elects uh, an African-American city council named Oliver Hill in 1948. But very few people know that they parlay that political victory into building this constituency that applies pressure on city councilmen and, and to a lesser effect, um, uh, state delegates uh, through this organization called the Richmond Crusade for Voters, which was established in 1956. Shout and out by to 1964, yeah, it's, it's a, it, the history is, is fascinating. So what ends up happening is they build this constituency and they elect an African-American to city council in 1964. And it scares whites, but it's not just the political power that African-Americans are exerting on the system that scares whites. It's the fact that Richmond is also becoming a majority black city. Mm-hmm. So these 
these these politicians read the tea leaves. They know what's going to happen. Richmond is not only going to trend majority black, but the politics, particularly after the ratification of the Voting Rights Act, where African-Americans didn't have the right to vote. And even more specifically, uh, banning of poll taxes in 1966 in another Virginia Supreme Court case. They realize they're going to lose the council. And what they do is they annex a portion of Chesterfield County, which is still now to this day a portion of Richmond, uh, to dilute the African-American vote. And what African-Americans end up doing is they appeal to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court finally, um, after quite some time, uh, tells the city of Richmond that they cannot take uh, or Chesterfield County, or at least they're going to listen to the case. And okay. so they, they pause elections for seven years mm-hmm. and they make Richmond implement a district-based system. And that system still uh, dictates politics. People still elected in that system. As, uh, so that's the story. The story is that African-Americans were actually able to build a political constituency um, before the Voting Rights Act of 1965, so much so that they began to um, exert influence over the nature of local politics. And we, we generally tend to tell the civil rights movement as a triumph narrative, right? That mm-hmm. African-Americans take to the streets um, and and through civil disobedience and direct action protest, they're able to change the nature of federal law mm-hmm. and uh, and bring the death knell, if you will, on Jim Crow segregation. The untold story is the obstructionism that takes place as a response to that. Exactly. Even more untold stories that African-Americans, one of the biggest misconceptions about Southern voting before 1965 is that blacks weren't voting at all. And that's not necessarily true. Right. Not many were voting, but some were. And in places like Virginia and to a lesser extent or or equally in North Carolina, they're able to do some pretty magical things with the, with the power of, of, of the poll. And um, that's an integral part of the civil rights movement that people don't like to discuss. And this is going to sound like sacrilege coming Uh from a historian of the civil rights movement, but very people know this, especially activists in the 21st century. All right, go ahead. Tell me something. Civil disobedience and direct strategies are a last resort, right? They're a resort that people use when they don't have a seat at the table. Mm -hmm. They're a brilliant strategy, by the way, and they work within the context of the Cold War. They work within the context of segregated South. But King and the SCLC and all those other, uh, and Ella Baker and and Septima Clark and all these other individuals are taking this because they don't have any other recourse, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Well, that's not the case in Virginia. Because they have a seat at the table, they're able to use politics to try to influence not only the nature of public policy, but to build some type of community control, because that's what it's really about. Okay, so when you say they have a seat at the table, who is they? Oh, well, mi- middle class African Americans, okay. right? But African Americans. Um, and so, our next question would kind of be like, what table with with politicians? You mean? Yeah. No, there because there are no politicians. These are middle class African Americans, doctors and lawyers. But the difference is African Americans circle the race wagons during segregation, right? Because there's a common enemy to defeat. Mm-hmm. So middle class African Americans are able, in many ways, to get a lot of people on board, okay. including in, including working class, middling and lower class African-Americans. They buy into this because they see these individuals right. um, as brokering on their own behalf. And, and there's a lot of people don't understand that. It's it's especially in the African-American community. Sometimes, yeah, we hear people romanticizing about segregation or we had our own things. We right. had this. What we also don't understand is there were upwards of eight dumps in Jackson. Those neighborhoods were toxic. There weren't, there wasn't modern sewage in Church Hill until the 1960s. I mean, people mm-hmm. were sick from diseases in these neighborhoods that had been eradicated from the modern world. Wow. So when African-Americans are coming to the table, they're not just voting for the sake of politics. They're voting because they're trying to take control of their communities that are sickening. Right. Uh, yeah, no, and 
And so before we definitely get into the power of the poll, because I mm-hmm. think that's really important, just to sum up a little bit of the 1970s, sure. the, the story that you just told. Basically, after the Voting Rights Act 1965 and elimination of the poll tax here, mm-hmm. voter black votership went up yep. and uh, the black popula- population was also increasing. That's right. And so the white politicians then used a strategy of annexation. Yep. Parts of Chesterfield attempted to do that yep. to increase white votership. That's right. To dilute the black voters. Mm-hmm. And then they, because of the participation and engagement of folks like the Richmond Crusades and people really fighting for that, a case was then heard on a federal level to at least pause that yep. move. And within that, it paused elections. from early 1970s. If I'm looking at it, particularly reading and obsessing up your paper, they allowed one special election in 1972, but they, the next main election did not happen after the 1971 case started until 1977. That's right. So here in Richmond, if you do not know that we didn't have elections for a number of years because of a racist policy that was being enacted by our own politicians, then imagine how much more we do not know about our own city politics and what black politicians, Black activists, Black organizers, and just Black folks in general had to do to come together to get us to where we are today. I was just really amazed by that story. And I almost wonder, Julian, how many of our elected officials even know this story? Very few. Yeah. In large part because it doesn't fit the narrative that we like to tell the civil rights movement. Because mm. the, the, the even dirtier secret is that while African-Americans uh, get control of city council in 1977, they're also less, they're, they're left to clean up the mess of all those segregationist policies that right. had torn black communities asunder. Right. right. So what ends up happening? By 1977, we see this an unbelievably symbolic political victory in the election of um, the Black Majority Council with Henry Marsh being um, appointed uh, by that council uh, to the mayoralty as the first African-American mayor. And and I'd be foolish to say that that wasn't significant, but it also means that by the late 1970s and the early 1980s, educational policies, urban policies, and local policies, begin to have, public housing policies begin to have a profound influence on the nature in which the city evolves. What we end up seeing, and the book goes for Further than the article, by the way, is mm-hmm. that um, I'll go back very quickly to get forward. In, in 1901 and 1902, the Commonwealth of Virginia passes a constitution which uses poll taxes to disenfranchise 80 percent of African-Americans. But the secret is it also disenfranchised 50 percent of whites. Right. So what you get by the mid 20th century is an oligarchy. Mm-hmm. This government is controlled by a handful of wealthy individuals. And these wealthy individuals bring their racist biases to bear on the construction of state based and, and, and local public policy. That means the educational system, for one, begins to reflect their ideals and the ideals of other segregations. But it also means that as cities begin to alleviate the problem of automobile congestion, they begin to build freeways and they begin to raise neighborhoods. And what they end up doing is they do it in areas with the fewest amount of voters. And and in a place like this, that means African-Americans. So what that means is they clear out neighborhoods and they compress African-Americans into public housing. um, uh, They clear slums, in fact, and then they compress these African-Americans into public housing. And so by 1977, the compression of African-Americans into public housing has a profound influence on the development of rich I grew up in the 1980s, right? And it's part of the reason why I wrote this book. I went to UVA and I studied with Julian Bond. And I, I, I asked him one day, I was like, I, don't, I, can't, I can't, as a child of the 1980s, who understood the rise of gun violence, the rise of cocaine violence, the rise of crack and the rise of gang violence, understand how we continue to sell this triumph there that, that it's a civil rights movement, given the nature of how the 1980s shook out and which culminated in some ways in the Los Angeles riots in the early 1990s. And I think 
Richmond has a story to tell there in large part um, because of the nature in which the public housing situation developed over the course of the late 20th century. But more importantly, how African-Americans struggled to meet those challenges, particularly the African-American City Council. Unfortunately, what that meant was whites generally tend to blame them for the city mm-hmm. developing in the manner that it did in large part because no one wanted to blame segregationists for the problems right. that Richmond inherited in the twilight of the 20th century. That would mean we'd have to actually talk about them and the right. policies as well. That's right. To, to blame them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So you've given us a, a lot of background. So I just want to recap for myself. Mm-hmm. You busted the myth about indentured servants. Right. Thank you for that. And if anyone just tuned in, he definitely clarified that those that came over in 1619 were in bondage. So in my mind, that pretty much says slavery. Um, we also talked about the voting rights that happened right here in Richmond, Virginia, and actually stopped our voting in the 1970s. And um, you gave us a really good history about the housing and what's going on now and what that's looking like. I'm really interested in this last part before we move on to the next segment mm-hmm. of what advice would you give for folks that are looking to engage in black politics here in Richmond? Not necessarily running, but just looking to engage. Sure, You can't have reconciliation without recognition. I don't even think it's reconciliation, right? Yeah. Um, You can't reconcile what's never been unified. And I think the problem that is happening in this city is uh, we don't want to be realistic about the history. We don't want to have to grapple with that, what African-Americans had to endure. That's probably, it's likely why I was on the Monuments Commission, right? Because I'm a 20th century historian Mm -hmm. and I know the Confederate memorialization is inextricably linked to Jim Crow. Most of those statues are built in in the 20th century. Even more importantly to what you're talking about is this idea that when we want to talk about what's wrong with the African-American community in the 21st century, we often leapfrog Jim Crow to get back to slavery. But Jim Crow had a profound influence on African-Americans' upwardly mobile aspirations. In fact, there's some really good research coming out now that most of what we attribute to the lack of development in certain African-American communities can be found in some of the urban policies and the segregationist platforms of the 20th century and not so much slavery. Wow. Um, And I think until we deal with that history, Uh we're going to struggle to deal with the problems that are defining the 21st century. In fact, we're, we're going to end up making many of the same mistakes because what we're seeing, um, the movement of, of white Americans in the suburbs in the mid 20th century was the biggest migration of human beings in the history of humanity. Uh-huh. But now we're alive during the second biggest migration of human beings in the history of humanity. And that's called, you know, this is the great inversion. This is people moving back into cities. And these people are coming into contact with poverty yep. that their parents ran away from. Yep. And unless you understand that, those circumstances, all kinds of misinformation and misunderstandings are going to rise from that proximity. Yeah. And it's happening. That's right. That's why I think these histories are absolutely essential. The histories aren't going to get us to designing better public policies, but they'll get us to understand how we might not make or how we shouldn't make the same mistakes that policymakers in the 20th century made. Yeah. And um, I might have to invite you back. I I see Kat over here getting us to move on. But just talking about those conflicts of moving in together and understanding history, it takes me right to the conversation I was having a couple months ago about the Coliseum Mm -hmm. and folks having no idea even what Navy Hill was, the neighborhood 
neighborhood, the school, and just having to bring that conversation out before we can even talk about the Coliseum. Read the fourth chapter of that book. Right? <laughs> They're called silver bullet strategies. People have mm. been using them in cities for years. A Coliseum or a hotel or a stadium is going to save a city. Um, and it rarely works. Right. Right. This if The past is prologue, right? This stuff is tired. And I think, uh, you know, anyone that knows anything about uh, urban policy in the late 20th century, particularly urban policy in cities with sizable African-American populations, know when tax bases start dwindling, people right. start trying to come up with these solutions to save the city. I'm not sure Richmond needs that now, given the demographic changes that are happening. Mm, Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Thank you so much for that history. You're welcome. Okay. So next segment, we're going to move on to a segment called What's Your Privilege? Right. Okay. So this is a segment where we talk about what our privileges are Mm -hmm. here in the city, in the context, and even globally. Sure. How we are privileged. Right. Um, Do you want me to go first? Do you want to go first? Uh. Go for it. Ladies first. All right, great. So my privilege that I'm going to identify today, there are plenty of them, but I'm really going to talk about my skin color Mm -hmm. and the lightness of my melanin, whether you call me yellow, light skin, transparent, Oreo. My mother is white. That's a big part of my talk, my identity and my dual lens and understanding that my privilege, especially in a lot of rooms, as I talk about blackness and culture is knowing how I show up and that piece, especially when I'm working with black women and understanding the privilege that I have there yeah. is is really important to me. So today I want to talk a little bit about the privilege in black spaces for me yeah. and recognizing that of when I step back, when my voice is silent, and then also when I'm doing my own listening and hearing and taking that into other communities. So my privilege today is my light skinned and melanin. <laughs> I'm also light skinned, <laughs> but I'm going to pick it. <laughs> okay. I was the richest kid on a poor block. Ah. That That's really my privilege. Um, I grew up in one of those compressed communities right on the edge of poverty. And um, I came from a good family. I, I came from a two parent household. And um, many of the brothers that grew up in my neighborhood were so lucky. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes we don't understand the granularity that defines the African-American experience, particularly along class lines. And having money as a kid had a profound influence on my development. Mm-hmm. But more importantly, having two parents in the household had a profound influence on my development. Not that single parent households can't make it, but I had two parents that were actively engaged in my development and had a profound influence on how I developed as an individual. That being said, I think one of the things I often like to emphasize when I talk about my own privilege is also talking about impediments, right? Mm-hmm. And despite all of that, mm-hmm. um, a lot of that stuff uh, that I this, that I just articulated didn't work in my favor outside of that community. So it was a strange juxtaposition to be the richest kid in a poor neighborhood and and then go and get shipped out to an all white school where but, you know you are. You're not the richest yeah. kid, right? <laughs> and you also mighty brown in that white class. <laughs> oh, absolutely. So yeah. that that really is uh, something that I would consider, particularly given the ways that people in my neighborhood didn't did not make out have a profound influence on how I thought about privilege. It it, it became even more apparent when I moved overseas just how lucky we are in the United States to have access to the types of resources that we have. Mm, mm. I've seen like real poverty. Right. Not that poverty here isn't real, but when you go to Cape Town, South Africa, oh, man, yeah, it's profound. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah. Right. So, uh, so you mentioned how it's privilege in one space, mm. but in another space, you felt like you were the other. Right. Uh, piece. How in the world would you explain that to someone who's white mm. that doesn't recognize that they have any privilege? It's a difficult endeavor. Um, and a lot of times you have to do it, especially in this, you know, hyper politicized age in mm-hmm. a backhanded kind of way. Right. I'm a historian. So I use history. Mm-hmm. I use the tools that I've been trained with at my disposal. I love that. Right. Right. Um, and I, I try to stay within my wheelhouse to get people to understand those things. Um, you know, we have a tendency to think that many of the things that we're born into developed organically and they did not. They've been engineered. They've been manufactured. And as I said earlier, people bring their biases to bear mm-hmm. on the structures and the systems that we live in. And I think when you can get people to see those structures and systems and that things aren't developed organically as an urban historian, we just like, you know, every Every inch of the city has been designed by someone. Right, right. You have to think about how people bring, how they think about the world on those designs. And when you break that to to white students, generally, it's like, you know, there's a reason why you grew up in the suburbs. There's a reason why your school is predominantly white. It's not just by choice. It's by design. And when people begin to see those designs, Mm -hmm. I think they can step out of their shell. It becomes a little less of an individual endeavor. And they start to see um, that the community that they grew in was well orchestrated. And sometimes the wall comes down. Wow. I really, first off, I want to say another privilege is that you have all this background knowledge on the history. I think that right there really gives people a different lens and a respect to hear you. Right. Um, but I loved what you said about people using the tools that they have. And many times in my experience, it's me encouraging people just to use their own stories and experience. That's for that. right. Sure. Like those are tools. They're powerful. Right. That's why everybody needs to have a seat at the table, right? Mm. That's why you can't construct policy. I mean, how are you going to think about addressing the issues that... Um, define life in public housing if you don't have people who live in public housing at the table. Right. 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 They're going to bring their tools to bear on the nature in which this conversation is going to develop. So I think that's it. But we also live in a country that doesn't respect expertise. You're right. Right. You're and right. it's getting worse. Mm-hmm. Um, scholars are under attack. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you've heard, but global warming is not real. It's not real, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. It, well, oh man. And we're ready for reconciliation here right. in Richmond. And, uh, you, uh, but back to your question, I think okay. another thing about privilege um, in talking to people and trying to convince them to see the privileges they have are recognizing who you can and cannot convince. Mm, say it again. There are some people that are not worth having a discussion with. I'm, I am done trying to change the hearts and minds of, of dying the world racists. Thank you. They're not going to change, right? They're right. 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 I, I, so I work with people all over the city in this work. And right now what's happening with Ralph Northam, and I work in narrative change, it's kind of one of the titles that I wear. So many folks have said, well, why aren't you reaching out to him directly to work with him? Mm-hmm. It sounds like his his folks, his administration could really need you. And I'm I'm saying, well, my efforts right now are going into the people that want to listen, That's that right. want to learn. That's right. And a lot of, I will say, folks that I respect and have been mentors to me and been in this work a really long time, they have seen this as their way to finally have an end right. to folks that have been closing the door in their faces for decades. Right. And as much as I, I can appreciate their, that them seeing the light at the end of the tunnel from their work. I'm also leading and opening a door to youth, to young people, to other people that want to learn and listen. And I would love for them to walk through those doors right. instead of still trying to bang on the Ralph Northams. That's of the right. World. And because as you're banging on that door, 
you're not paying attention to the generations of people who actually have something meaningful to bring to the conversation. I think yeah. it really does. It's, it's, it's a, that's one of the things I think that we can glean from the civil rights movement is they knew who. Right. To talk to, right. and they knew how to talk to them. They were brilliant strategists. I, I don't think we give them the credit they deserve within the context uh, that they had to work with, and they knew who they couldn't convince. Yeah, and they, right. In fact, not only did they know who they couldn't convince, they manipulated the people mm-hmm. that they couldn't convince. Hello, right, right, right. In a manner that helped them. But that's all strategy. Of course, that was strategy. That's strategy. It, it wasn't. I'm gonna. I'm gonna love them with my heart. I'm gonna get them to do the inner work. That wasn't. That wasn't the part of that. Even King didn't believe that. Come on. (laughs) So I appreciate you playing with our game and answering the question of what's your privilege. Thank you, Dr. Hader, for that. Okay, Julian, is there anything else that you'd like to say or give out to the people? And you're always welcome back. So don't feel like you. Uh, You know, I think um, just that this stuff isn't inaccessible, right? Uh, the things that I'm talking about, this history in, in the archives, this is all, most of the stuff that um, is in that book is public record. Mm-hmm. And if you're curious and you're interested in, in the history of, of your place or your area or another area, go out and find it. Yep. Um, it's there. And I think it'll help you unlock perhaps not only your life, but thinking about the history that defines the lives of others. Mm-hmm. And it's all there for people. And I think one of the things that we generally tend to think about when we think about intellectualism in the academy is that it's inaccessible, but it's not. Right. And if people recognize that these histories nowadays are being written, we have a tendency to think that American history is biased and and that it's not telling the story, especially African-Americans, the real story. But there have been some really profound histories that have been written over the last 30 years mm-hmm. that affirm many of the things that African-Americans believe about their experience yep. is over the last 400 years. Thank you so much, Julian. And that's really what our show is about, is bringing a lot of those stories forward and encouraging people to dive into their curiosity. So thank you so much to Dr. Julian Hader. And we will definitely post his book and the article on all the social medias. Thank you so much again. My pleasure. All right. Take care. What an episode. Yeah, that was really something. I really appreciated a lot of the knowledge that Dr. Heider shared with us, um, especially regarding city council history. And he made a great point that a lot of our elected officials don't even know this. Hello. But, you know, I really can't stop thinking about what he said. You can't reconcile what's never been unified. Right. Yeah. I really, I really appreciate that because that is the talk in the United States that makes us so different than other countries. We talk about race and conflict. That might be a good subject for another episode. So, man, we really got to realize the expertise that we have right here in Richmond. Shout out to Dr. Hader. And next week, we start to hear the expertise of women in Richmond. The stories and experiences make them the experts. And we're hyped to dive right into Women's History Month with the voices of women. 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 You can't see it, but I'm doing a little dance, you guys. (laughs) It's cute. (laughs) We get hype over here around women. So shout out to all of the women coming in. Shout out to everyone that is out here understanding that black history is so important. But you know what is also important? Black women history. So remember, we can keep celebrating in March. It does not have to end in February. And we're really excited to take you on that journey with us. Yep. Yep. So Kat, I'd like to really just thank you for this first episode. Thank you, Chelsea. It's been a pleasure. 
It has. I look forward to working with you and learning with you and laughing and crying and probably even having people talk about us a little bit. Oh, yeah. Well, we'll get through it together. We'll get there. (laughs) Well, thank you again. Thanks to all the listeners. Follow us on all the social medias of things. And we will catch you guys right back here Wednesdays at 10 on Race Capital at WRIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Independent Radio. Bye, y'all. I'm from the...
a guy begging for help, and he gave it to me in the form of a mirror. Damn, Petey Petey, you getting deep on him. They were sleep out, so I put the sheets on him. Breathe on him. Block him. My energy grows and it flows through my chakras. I'm the type in the make room with the chopper. You the type nigga get thrown in the locker. I'm out for paper. One in his stacks for the racks. I wanna be like a Tommy Tanaka. the way, Race Capital and RVA Dirt have teamed up to manifest some dopeness out of the Blackface History Month of 2019. If you've been following us on the social medias, we've launched a GoFundMe on February 7th with the help of Bob Land and the National Women's March, and then also a major push from Tressie McMillan Cottom. The GoFundMe has earned over seven grand in donations with a goal of $10,000. Race Capital and RVA Dirt received incredible support from individuals, but also institutions that have signed on to completely support this program. Our mission with the HBCU Research Fellowship is to provide amplification for a small group of students attending historically black colleges and universities in the area. We want to inspire a seed of a positive outcome from this whole 2019 Virginia blackface crisis. The GoFundMe was created to provide research scholars with stipends to do the researching and cataloging of images that can bring forward, yes, some of our real racial trauma, but also a critical parts of unearthing a full historic narrative. The stipend is to also address the research scholars connecting the past images of political leaders to how leadership impacts current policies and continuing to marginalize black people. History is the foundation of our approach, and we're committed to convening avenues for learning to better implement others, especially these students, their passion for innovative services and solutions to politically being engaged. Finally, our initial mission was to not only raise funds for an equitable approach to elevating these scholars, but we also want to increase knowledge and access to local research networks that align with their classroom education. Chelsea, this is such a cool program. What does a student's work look like on a day-to-day basis? Well, right now we are really trying to make a safe container for the students. We have onboarded students from Virginia State University as well as Virginia Union University. So our first gatherings have really been in their space, in their classrooms, and their college campuses. We bring food and we bring drink and we just kind of talk about what we want from the program from our view, but more importantly, what they want from this program, what they're trying to learn, what research they want to really take on. So this is about right now we're building that coalition. And then because we've had so many awesome contributions from people in the area, like people at the Library of Virginia and people at University of Richmond will be invited to those spaces as well to do research and archiving. University of Richmond has invited us to also look over their manual over the race and racism archive that they have there. It's an amazing program and they're already looking at University of Richmond's own yearbooks and own like 
newsletters and things from the past, what we're calling institutional artifacts. So that's what this research project is really going to be looking at now are those artifacts like yearbooks. So not only yearbooks. Um, So they'll be going into different spaces around Richmond, being able to read, touch, go through the different systems and learn how to archive that, even if it's just starting out with a basic of taking pictures on their phone. That's a really cool thing that we're learning that is happening at U of R is that they find innovative ways to do this research. Very cool. So a lot of primary source work. A lot of primary source work, exactly. And what do you think will come out of it afterward? So what we really want to do is partner with our local school system. Hey, Richmond Public Schools. Hey. Hey. And do a report out to the upcoming, in the upcoming school year. So when it's back to school time, we really want to do a relearning of history, a report out from eight HBCU students to high school students here in Richmond so they can see what it could be like to do research that schools, HBCU schools, black schools are doing research and that could be them in a couple years. And it's also just a time to have a new narrative of Richmond's history coming straight to us. Like hearing the stories of Richmond history from college students that attend black schools, that's totally different. I cannot wait for that. And then to go straight into the ears of young black students, come on. That's really something. Come on. And you mentioned a fan fantastic fundraising effort. How is that going, keeping the fellowship afloat? Right. Well, that's why we really wanted the $10,000 because we understand the needs for that. And right now we're only at seven. And what are the funds going towards? Great question. So we have two tracks of this leadership program. One is the fellowship track, which is the networking, the connecting, and really building their network. The other side is the paid research side. So we're actually paying these students $25 an hour, which many people have told us is a ridiculous rate for this. But we understand that researchers should get paid a good rate and we want them to know that we value them and we value their time. This is not a workforce that we're looking for. This is truly an investment in our future leaders. Yeah, so I really look forward to seeing these scholars have their work produced and everyone getting a chance to get access to that. And that's all for this week. Thanks so much to everyone that's listening. This is Chelsea Higgs-Wise and Kat Maudlin-Jackson and this is Race Capital. See you next week.